Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damian Garde, recording from Stats New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from Stats Worldwide Headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stats Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, February 6th, and before we get into the news, we want to hear from you. So we're coming up on the 100th episode of this podcast, and to commemorate that, we want to get listeners involved. So if you have a question, a comment, or a brief rant to share, call us at 617-517-6130 and leave a voicemail. And your contribution just might end up in our centennial show. Now, here's what we're going to talk about this week. Scientists are moving fast to dissect the spreading coronavirus, but is that speed coming at the expense of accuracy? Our colleague Sharon Begley will join us to discuss. Meanwhile, the drug industry is trying to figure out how to stop the virus before it gets any worse. We'll take a look at the various drugs and vaccines in development. Who belongs on the Mount Rushmore of biotech? We'll debate the subject with the help of our colleague Matt Herper. Last but not least, we're bringing back the lightning round. We'll discuss President Trump's State of the Union address, earnings season, and some biotech-adjacent celebrity gossip. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. First up, we're going to talk about the new coronavirus, conspiracy theories, and the preprint movement in science. So as the virus has spread in and beyond China in the past few weeks, scientists around the globe have been putting out papers at a rapid clip, both in traditional journals and on the preprint servers that house papers that have yet to be peer-reviewed. And that's largely been a good thing because scientists have been able to quickly share findings and learn from one another in a way that we haven't seen in past outbreaks. But that speed has also come with a downside, as several inaccurate papers in recent days have spread misinformation and fueled conspiracy theories about the virus. Joining us to talk about all this is our colleague Sharon Begley, who's been closely watching the preprint movement in medicine. Sharon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, everybody. So Sharon, give us some background on preprints and how they're viewed in the medical research community. They've been viewed as a way to get research out much more quickly than is possible through traditional publishing. And what we've seen over the years is that if you submit a paper, especially to one of the more selective journals, it can be months and sometimes more than a year sitting around. And that has had really bad consequences, both for science and also really for the individual researchers. But more important, if a lab has come up with something interesting and important that others in the field can build on, it really is just an impediment to progress to have it sit so, so, so long. So the idea behind BioArchive and more recently MedArchive is to get results out there. There are all sorts of disclaimers that the papers have not been subject to peer review, let alone have they been accepted by journals, and others in the field can make of the results what they will. So let's go back to last Friday uh, when an inflammatory paper from academic institutions in New Delhi, India, was posted on a preprint server and immediately went viral online. The paper claimed to find, quote, uncanny similarity 
end quote, between the new coronavirus and HIV. And the abstract said that the similarities were, quote, unlikely to be fortuitous, end quote. Now, that language led to some hysteria as people surmised that the virus had somehow been engineered by humans. But the paper was technically wrong and it was quickly withdrawn. So, Sharon, what did you make of this episode and what does it say about preprints? Right. So not fortuitous and coronavirus are not words that you want to have in close proximity to each other. So that was one big reason that people paid attention to it. And as you're saying, Adam, basically flipped out. So people who knew what was going on with the genetic sequencing of the coronavirus could tell right away that this was an error. And DNA sequencing machines have a certain error rate. So when you see all of these genetic sequences deposited in public data banks, the people who are in the field understand that those are not God's truth out there, that you have to understand that there could be mistakes there. But to answer your question, yes, the paper was quickly withdrawn. Mistakes were acknowledged, as they say, and people who understood the mistake that was made quickly commented on it and said there are errors here. On the other hand, you know, it's not only scientists and people in the relevant disciplines who are reading preprints these days. So when, you know, the active communities on Reddit and elsewhere saw it, then to coin a cliche, the horse had galloped out of the barn well before the barn door had been closed. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can tell you that I had several investors that, you know, who I speak to regularly who called me, texted me on Friday and citing that paper and they were freaking out. And I think that, you know, stocks sold off on Friday and I, you know, there was a lot of reasons why stocks sell off, but that paper contributed to like a global stock sell off. So the whole flap over coronavirus's alleged relationship to HIV got all the attention, but that wasn't the only questionable preprint that has been floating out there on this topic. Sharon, what else are you seeing when reading through these new papers? You know, there are preprints that use a mathematical model to project where it will become most intense, how far it will spread. There are preprints, again, doing genetic analyses and what you can tell about the behavior of the virus from the genetic sequence. And all of those I would categorize as interesting ideas, but not established facts. So as we here at STAT continue to cover the coronavirus, I'm looking at preprints several times a day. And if there's one that seems at least potentially right, as well as interesting, then, you know, just just as when we cover preprints on other topics, there are ways to report it out. But again, you know, we have to acknowledge that people who are not journalists and who don't have any particular knowledge about biology or especially virology are also looking at these things. I would not say that that is a death knell for preprints. This too shall pass. And maybe it will be a lesson to the larger community that preprints are not to be taken, you know, as, again, established truth. So it hasn't just been preprints that have been spreading misinformation about the coronavirus. Let's talk about a high-profile case reported last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's, of course, one of the most prestigious journals out there. So that paper found that a patient with the new coronavirus had transmitted it to other people in Germany before showing any symptoms. That was a big and concerning finding. But then this week, Germany's public health agency corrected the record. In fact, the patient had actually experienced mild symptoms. And it turned out that the researchers who published the New England Journal report hadn't actually interviewed the patient herself and had just relied on secondhand information. 
Sharon, what should we make of that situation? I think what we should make of it is that even established journals are feeling that the pace of scientific discovery and the need for fast scientific communication has overtaken them as well. But I think what we are seeing throughout the world of scientific communications is that people feel information has to get out there really, really fast. And maybe as they balance the need for speed, they are giving short shrift to, you know, quality control. Sharon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, everyone. So while academia is trying to figure out just how the coronavirus works, the drug industry is trying to stop it. Since the outset of the outbreak, drug companies, serious and otherwise, have said they're investigating potential vaccines or treatments. Damien, you went to the labs of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals this week. What are they up to there? Yes, I went up to lovely Terrytown, New York, where Regeneron is at work trying to find an antibody that might treat this virus. So this is not a vaccine. This would be something for people who are already infected to reverse that infection. And the reason I was interested, frankly, is that Regeneron has been in the business of making antibodies for things for quite some time. They have some multi-billion dollar products that rely on this process of discovering antibodies. And also, they've done it before in this context. During the recent Ebola outbreak, they crafted an antibody for that virus. And in the end, in an eventual clinical trial, it had a pretty dramatic effect on survival rates for people who had been infected. So as we speak, this outbreak is spreading around the world and the death toll has risen above 500. Realistically, how soon might there be a drug or vaccine? So for Regeneron, their Ebola experiment took about 10 months between starting the process and having a treatment that was ready to test on people. Over at Gilead Sciences, there was an antiviral treatment that they had already invented that may have an effect on this virus and has already been used on at least one person. And they're starting a clinical trial in China as we speak. So, you know, the timing there will just depend on organization. As for vaccines, Moderna Therapeutics and Inovio are working with a a non-governmental entity, and they're under a directive to get a vaccine ready for human trials within about three months. We'll see how that goes. It's not impossible, but it's an important caveat that Neither company has been all the way down this road before. They've never gotten a vaccine approved, and they don't have the internal capacity to, if a vaccine succeeds, produce the millions of doses that would be required if this outbreak ends up being as bad as many people think it will be. Damien, when we think about responses to global outbreaks, you know, we think of companies like Merck, Sanofi, Glaxo, SmithKline. Where is Big Pharma in the coronavirus response? It's been interesting. They have been fairly quiet. Johnson & Johnson, I think probably by market cap, the biggest healthcare company in the world, they are working on a vaccine, they've said. But the other names that you just mentioned appear to be sitting on the sidelines when it comes to investing in this process, which is interesting. I know we spoke with our colleague Helen Branswell about this topic before that, you know, more and more responding to these outbreaks is looking like a bad proposition to big pharma for the reasons that you know, we talked about before, sometimes they go away and, and it's all for naught, but also that quite often it, it ends up being reputationally problematic for these companies to mobilize against this in the name of public health and then ending up seeing bad headlines about your alleged profiteering in the process. So while that's understandable in many ways, at least on the vaccine angle, it kind of leaves the world between a rock and a hard place. As we mentioned before, Moderna, Inovio, and others are very much committed to this, but have never done it before. And, and unlike, for example, GlaxoSmithKline, don't have production plants around the world where they could 
churn out doses if, if we're necessary. So they may have the cool science, but without the sort of armaments of big pharma, you know, it remains to be seen whether the industry can actually do something about this. Adam, you wrote a column this week about the Mount Rushmore of biotech CEOs. This monument doesn't exist, of course, but if it did, you had some ideas about who should be on it. I did, in fact, write this column, and my two non-negotiable biotech CEO selections were Art Levinson of Genentech and Henry Tremere of Genzyme. Both men are biotech legends, so if I had a chisel and any artistic abilities whatsoever, I'd be sculpting their faces onto granite. So there are, of course, four slots on the actual Mount Rushmore, and you have made non-negotiable two of them, which led to a conversation about who else belongs. And so joining us now to engage in exactly that conversation is our colleague Matt Herper. Matt, what did you think of Adam's biotech Mount Rushmore selections? Well, it was a good selection for the first two. I think Art Levinson really is probably non-negotiable. And one of the strange things about this is you could probably entirely fill a biotech Mount Rushmore with Genentech executives. It was the first biotech company, and you could argue Herb Boyer and Robert Swanson, the founders, belong there. You could even argue that Art Levinson's second-in-command, Sue Hellman, belongs there. And I did get some feedback from people about, you know, other sort of scientist types or non-CEOs. To be clear, I was talking about CEOs, so, like, you know, Sue Hellman would have been in a great selection, um, and also, you know, a prominent woman in the biotech community. My selection criteria were CEOs, so that's kind of where Art Levinson came in. It's hard to argue with Art, and I think Henry Tremere is obviously a great choice. There may be some other biotech CEOs that you could even argue are as important as him. The other one was John Martin from Gilead was an obvious choice for building one of the biggest companies in the industry. Well, if I'm not mistaken, the animating question, Adam, for you to even consider this was Jeffrey Lydon, the current CEO of Vertex Pharmaceuticals, who will step down, I believe, April 1st from that post. And the question was whether, you know, Vertex Pharmaceuticals' incredible work in cystic fibrosis is something that makes Jeff Lydon meritorious of, of being on this fictional Mount Rushmore. Right. He's retiring later this year. And, you know, he had this incredible eight-year run. And all the work that was done in cystic fibrosis was kind of done under his tenure there. So does he deserve to be on there? You know, honestly, I think people felt that the jury was still out. It was maybe too soon. And maybe there was a little bit of a sort of recency bias going on. Because then you could also sort of make the argument that Joshua Boger, who is the founding CEO of Vertex, who, as a lot of people know, sort of brash, sort of risk-taking, some would say maybe borderline sort of arrogant, but really kind of set the DNA at Vertex. Like a lot of stories in biotech, there are a lot of heroes in the CF story. That program started at a company that Vertex acquired, not for the cystic fibrosis program. And the first data on it did predate Jeff. So... I think that would be a lot of your tension there. There are a lot of CEOs who've done an amazing job as CEOs. I mean, Jim Mullen's career at Biogen looks a lot better in the rearview mirror. Uh, Jeff certainly has done an amazing job. But if you're saying there are only four, it starts to get tough. So Damien, Rebecca, any thoughts here, particularly like John Martin? And that was someone that I mentioned who might be a candidate for the Mount Rushmore of biotech CEOs. What do you think? I agree with that. I think you got to have uh, one of the founding fathers of Gilead on this monument. Uh, the company has just had such a big impact, both in good ways and in more controversial ways. Uh, and so I think they have to be represented there. 
But actually, I think a lot of this is still unwritten and that after that kind of first big pick, you do kind of hit an area where there are a lot of people who could fit, which maybe means that we're not ready to make a call yet. Regeneron gets a few more big drugs. Do they belong up there? And then you have people who've been serial entrepreneurs. You know, what if someone managed to found several companies in this space? Yeah, like someone had mentioned to me that Mark Levin might be, you know, given his role, not only his role as CEO of Millennium Pharmaceuticals, but like the whole genomic revolution. And then when he went to Third Rock and sort of company formation, that like he would be somebody that might be on that rock. Probably several VCs that could make that argument. And, you know, there could be drug inventors or scientists who really might be important. It is a science-based industry. Part of the lesson is it's hard to define who that Mount Rushmore would be at, which shows even though the biotech industry is 44 years old at this point, it's still pretty young as an industry. So another facet of, you know, Matt, to your point about a lot of these stories still being unwritten is that all of the candidates for this that that we've discussed, all of the people who've had these long careers leading biotech companies have at least one thing in common, which is that they're all men. And that's obviously not a reflection of, of women somehow being incapable of being biotech CEOs who who change the face of the industry. Rather, it's because in biotech, as in so many industries, they haven't been given the same opportunity uh, historically. But getting to the point of this story, you know, not yet having been written, more and more, we're seeing more gender balance with respect to who leads at least emerging startups in biotech. And so one or more of them might grow into the next Gilead, the next Genentech or Vertex. And so it's quite possible that upon revisiting this exact conversation five years from now and assembling a Mount Rushmore of biotech then, that the gender makeup of the faces on the mountain might look quite different. So another question, Adam, where are you going to put this monument? Well, you know, I was actually thinking about that last night because someone asked me. And so it would be a little bit strange to put it out there in South Dakota where the real Mount Rushmore is. But then I thought to myself, what about in South San Francisco, you know, there's that big mountain when you're coming north from that from the airport where there's the big South San Francisco sign. It's like, got to be in South could, San Francisco or Kendall Square. Could, really, the only carve, two places. Yeah, we could carve that that big mountain there in South San Francisco with these faces. I think you know, and as we come in and out from the airport in SFO, we would we would see it. You know, there is a great statue on the Genentech campus of Herb Boyer and Robert Swanson having coffee. Or beers. No, they're having beers. And so you can go and sit and have a beer with the founders of Genentech. Um, so, so maybe it should be in view of that table. And now back by popular demand is the lightning round, the first one of 2020. So let's start with the State of the Union address, which President Trump gave on Tuesday night. He gave brief remarks about drug pricing during the speech. I'm calling for bipartisan legislation that achieves the goal of dramatically lowering prescription drug prices. Get a bill on my desk and I will sign it into law immediately. And then something unexpected happened. Right. So Democrats in attendance from the back of the House chamber began to stand up, hold out three fingers and chant H.R. 3, 
which of course is the name of House Resolution 3, uh, which is the bill that Democrats passed in the House in December that, among many things, would have allowed Medicare to directly negotiate the price of up to 250 drugs and, at least according to the Congressional Budget Office, saved the program about $350 billion per year. So that made for interesting dramatic stagecraft in an otherwise kind of boring television event. But Adam, does this matter? No, it doesn't. Moving on, it is biotech earnings season. Adam, tell us what you've been watching from the larger cap companies. Yeah, so biotech earnings season is underway. And I have to say it's been kind of blah. Is maybe <laughs> That's not really a great descriptor. I would probably say like the biggest takeaway that I've seen so far is earnings guidance for 2020, which is what we usually get and often get at this time of year. And it's been kind of like in line to soft. I mean, I think notably like Gilead's guidance for 2020 was kind of weaker than expected. Amgen's was also so... Eh, I mean, with Biogen, you know, the thing that we were all waiting for was some word from them on the aducanumab, Alzheimer's drug filing with the FDA, and the company really had no significant update with that project. We're still waiting to know, as Damien is watching closely, we're still waiting to see when that drug will be filed with the FDA. So, Rebecca, I hear that you got a slack from our boss last night. Yeah. So the executive producer of this podcast, Rick Burke, sent me a Slack message at about midnight Eastern time last night that read, and I quote, did you deal with Michael Polanski, end quote. So that name sounded vaguely familiar to me, but I couldn't place it. So I turned to Google and it turns out that Michael Polanski is a co-founder and board member of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. That's the organization started by internet billionaire Sean Parker to advance cancer research. And Polanski is also the executive director of Parker's foundation that funds the Institute. And it makes sense that Rick would be asking me because I did a big profile of Sean Parker and his institute last summer. And so what's going on with Mr. Polanski? So I came across an article from that trusted biotech news source, page six, and I learned that Polanski is now Instagram official with Lady Gaga. She posted a picture of herself lounging with him on a yacht in Miami. And according to Page Six's reporting, uh, the two of them have likely gotten to know each other through events hosted by Sean Parker at his mansion in L.A. And they connected again at his birthday party in December. This is also kind of an incredible, I don't know if coincidence is the right word, but I believe I learned from your story about Sean Parker last year that he also brokered the introduction of Lady Gaga to Bradley Cooper, which led to the motion picture A Star is Born. So this is all great news for Lady Gaga and Mr. Polanski. Have we figured out why our executive producer and boss Rick Burke found out about this? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think the story of Lady Gaga's interest in biotech is the ultimate stat story, and nothing would make Rick happier than if I were to pull off that piece. So if anyone has any tips for me, you know where to find me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. But before we go, we need to wish happy birthday to Adam, who turns 52 on Friday. No, 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 no. I'm only 25. <laughs> happy birthday, Adam. And thank you to Hyacinth Empanada, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. 
Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which companies Lady Gaga should invest in in biotech. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And as always, if you like what we do, please do leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Thank you.